Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Pop Culture and Penicillin, where we mix pop culture topics with topics in medicine to show you, the listener, that medicine and science are all around you. I am one of your hosts, the Dr. Warren, and I am joined with my co-host, Dr. LJ. Good day, good day, good day, everyone. How's it going? How are you? It's going well. It's another beautiful day in Zamunda. So excited (laughs) to be on the podcast today. Yes. Yes, coming to America reference. I, I know. I'm glad that you got, got the it. reference. I think it's not difficult to get that reference. But, you know, in this period of social distancing, I've been watching quite a number of movies, and that was one of the movies I I watched. And so brought back quite a number of memories. Yeah, I remember watching Coming to America when I was younger. It's a classic movie. I think it's a, a movie that every American should see. In fact, they probably should put it up in the U.S. embassies so that <laughs> everybody is. can... Watch it when they come in to get their paperwork and the visa. You're too loud. Let's bring that down a notch. Okay. I think it's iconic, but I don't know if we should take the step of putting it in in embassies. I have and... a question on like the nationalization test about like a quote. Like in the barbershop scene, what was the message that was given? That Eddie Essay. Murphy and Arsenio Hall are great actors. Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> it's time now for Morning Report. And this is a part of the podcast where we gather our thoughts and catch up on things that we've been doing since we last connected. And so we've kind of started this part of the episode already. And so we'll just continue on with the discussion that we're having regarding coming to America. Yes, 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 yes. I'm excited because there is reportedly going to be a coming to America part two. Oh, yeah, they are. Yeah, I heard that. And I'm pretty sure it'll be pretty good. I hope so. Mm -hmm. I pray that it is because... Coming to America is so iconic, I think, in the realm of popular culture. I think the bar that they have to meet to ensure that this sequel does not detract from the original is so high. For sure, for sure. And I think Eddie Murphy knows that. And I don't think he would put his name on anything if it wasn't going to reach that caliber. So I'm pretty sure even the discussion of getting people together to even write a script was years of convincing him and other people to get on top of the project because... You don't want to join a project or something that's not going to live up to the caliber of the original or the, the prequel. And I think a complicating factor now is that we live in an era of political correctness. And so I don't think that they'll have the latitude to kind of make some of the jokes and take some of the risks that they took at that time. Just mm-hmm. because watching it back, I was like, this would not go over well today. Just some of the scenes, some of the references made, mm-hmm. some of the insinuations that you know are put forward. But brilliant movie at the end of the day. Yeah, I remember watching it when I was older. And I remember the first time I got the actual like adult jokes. And it's funny because it was hilarious then. But I thought back, it was funny even when I was a child and didn't understand all this. I didn't know to know that Eddie Murphy plays so many different characters. Arsenio Hall plays so many different characters. Or just people in the movie that like Samuel L. Jackson is in the movie. I didn't realize that's like later on. And he like, played oh, such a minor role. It wasn't even a big role. And look at him now, you know? Yeah, it was. But he played, yeah. but he played that role to a T, though. Yeah. <laughs> it was really good. I thought they did an amazing job overall. So, yeah. And McDowell's and just McDowell. all of the references to like popular culture, even today, I thought mm-hmm. was amazing. And in watching it, I was actually getting flashbacks of Wakanda and Black Panther. And I was like, oh. Would Zamunda be like a sister city to a sister country to Wakanda, a prosperous African nation and a prosperous African nation in Wakanda? Just write the script. Write the script. <laughs> I don't I think don't they want me to write the script, but I thought it was really it's such a good movie. It really brought back 
such good memories. I remember this one time I had a, a pediatric patient and uh, her mother and her aunt and she had like a couple of cousins in the room with her and she was fine, but she had like hurt her ankle. So I told her to stand up and, you know, you know, kids, they just stand up. I'm like, okay, you're totally fine. So she stands up on her foot and I tell her, take your hands out. She sticks her hands out. I said, okay, now lift up your leg. I said, jump on, I said, jump on one foot. And I was like, and I'm like a dog. And she brought like a dog. Her mom lost it. Her mom was on the floor. A big dog. Yes, yes, yes. But it was, again, always got to bring some sunshine and a time of darkness. I think that that's exploitation and abuse of that child. I think we need to call it child protective services. Oh my gosh. Her mom, I said her mom like lost it. She was like laughing so hard. And then the daughter didn't understand what was going on. And then one of her cousins got it and then her aunt got it. Obviously she was laughing, but yeah, that was pretty funny. Whatever. I mean, it was good. Pretty sure my press gaining score was pretty high for her. I hope. Press Ganey, yeah. I'm not going to talk about Press Ganey, but moving right along. <laughs> oh, and by the way, guys, if you don't know what Press Ganey is, Press Ganey are patient satisfaction scores, and they can be a gift and a curse. And yeah. we might talk about that one one day. So we have been social distancing, and it's been interesting. Again, it's been a gift and a curse again. We've been watching more movies. I have been learning how to exercise on my own more. I've been reading more. Ooh, I've really, that's I've noteworthy. Stopped, yeah. I've stopped getting my information from the news, like watching the news on TV. So I'm reading more articles, keeping up to date with the White House, with the White House briefings, and then looking at other sources of data too as well and just really trying to make my own conclusions about things and my own assessment. And then there's books I've been trying to read on Audible or listen to on Audible for the past few months. And yeah, so that's kind of what I'm doing. So again, a gift and a curse. I agree. It's been a gift as well as a curse, but I am loving it. I think <laughs> I think I'm really enjoying it because I am an introverted baseline. And so just being able to stay home and have an excuse to remain at home is amazing. I'm like, this is fantastic. I don't have to do things I don't want to do. It's like, like LJ was like, I've been social distancing. I don't know. I don't know about y'all. I'm like, I'm professional. This is what I always do. I'm professional social distancer. But it has, it's been really good. It's funny because I do not do well when I watch movies. I very rarely get through movies. I always mm -hmm. fall asleep in the middle of them. Anybody who's been to the theater with me can tell you that I see the beginning of the movie. I may see a portion of the middle and I probably will see the end of it. But if you ask me what the movie was about, I will not be able to tell you beyond like the opening credits and what happened in the first few scenes. So mm. that's just something. That, but in this social distancing era, I've been actually getting through movies without falling asleep. I mean, you have to. What else can you do? I mean, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I think it's interesting because I would otherwise just sleep. I would be completely fine with sleeping. Really, all you would day. just sleep all the time. I have. All I day? love to sleep. If I could, if sleeping really? were an Olympic sport, I would be world class. I Are love to sleep. I, I can sleep not anywhere, like, anytime. I do not like to sleep. I hate when I sleep for long periods of time. Like I'll sleep the entire day, or I sleep half the day. That really annoys me because I feel like there's so many things I could have got done. What? I'm really trying to be more productive. I feel like you have 24 hours in a day. Make the most of those 24 hours. 
certainly agree with that. I think we should, you know, definitely seek to be efficient in, you know, the 24 hours that we have in the day, especially if you have a busy schedule. And speaking of being efficient, I think what I want to do for this podcast is bundle the two remaining sections of the podcast. So we're going to take our pop culture rounds and our dose of penicillin and put them together because what we're seeking to do in this month's podcast is build on what we discussed last month as it relates to coronavirus. The last episode entitled Heavy is the Head That Wears the Corona, I thought ooh, that title ooh, was pretty witty and thank you. You know, pretty genius. That was courtesy of the Dr. Warren. What we well, wanted to do. Well, well is, not, not quite courtesy of me, because I don't want people coming for me, but that is a quote from William Shakespeare's King Henry IV, Part Two. And actually, the quote I didn't know that that uh, I put in there, which was "Uneasy is the head that wears the crown," is the well-accepted translated quote. The actual quote that William Shakespeare wrote with his quill pen was "Uneasy lies the head that wears a crown." So I thought that was very interesting. But yeah, but the so one- is heavy then like a literal? Are we supposed to take heavy literally, or is that more a metaphorical interpretation of it's metaphor of the original or the book? Yeah, I mean, uneasy, heavy. I think all translate to worries and stress so yeah but i don't think they actually mean the physical i mean i'm pretty sure the crown was gold and it was actually heavy yeah you know queen elizabeth actually says that when she does her like opening a parliament like she has to have the paper in front of her because the crown is so heavy and she can't bend her head because it's that heavy that she runs the risk of like damaging her neck Is yeah, and she has osteoporosis too. I mean, how old is her? Know that? <laughs> she's, I mean, even though she's Queen Elizabeth, she's still a human being. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> All right. So moving right along <laughs> on that note, just we want to, <laughs> what we want to do with this episode <laughs> is build on the foundation of the previous episode. We want to see how far we've come as we in the management of the pandemic and seek to project what's going to happen in the future with regard to therapies, with regard to vaccines, so on and so forth. Just as a reminder, Pop Culture Rounds is the portion of the podcast where we highlight the everyday interconnectedness of popular culture as it relates to medicine. And the dose of penicillin portion of the podcast usually focuses on how we distill the complexities of medicine down to manageable tidbits that we can all understand. And so I think a good springboard at this point is to see what the numbers are reflecting since we last touched base with regard to the coronavirus pandemic. Yeah, since we last touched base, guys, the epidemic has now become a pandemic. And so the numbers obviously have increased. And so we wanted to share with you guys the updated numbers for the U.S. as well as globally. And we also want, in addition to talking about the confirmed cases and the total deaths, we also wanted to add in the recovered cases because we felt that was a silver lining in this dark cloud. So starting with the United States, the United States has over 350,000 confirmed cases. In regards to total deaths, the United States has over 10,000 total deaths. And for recovered cases, we're just under 19,000. Globally, we've hit the 1 million mark and we're about at 1.3 million confirmed cases. As far as total deaths, we're over 74,000 cases. And as far as recovered cases, we're just over 275,000 cases. So those are the updated numbers. Again, I think looking at the recovered cases is something that we can all do in order to give ourselves, again, a gleam of hope and some positivity throughout this crisis. How about you, LJ? What do you think? I agree. I think that looking at the bright side of, of those numbers and looking at the recoveries will indicate that even if you have bad form of coronavirus and you have terrible symptoms, you can come out on the other side recovered and doing well. 
And I think one of the other things we ought to remember is that the vast majority of individuals who are afflicted by the coronavirus infection Mm -hmm. don't actually have symptoms that require hospitalizations. Some may actually have no symptoms at all, and then others will have very mild to moderate Mm -hmm. symptoms, and that's 80% of the population. And so I think it's prudent to remember those things so that we don't feel like, okay, if I have happened to become infected, it's all downhill from there. Prudent. That's a good word. It is prudent, important, pertinent that you, exactly. that you remember that. Like remember an SAT word. That's the, remember numbers. Again, like 80%, that's a large percentage. So 80% of people will just have mild or asymptomatic symptoms. Yeah. And I think another thing that we ought to highlight is that we're seeing that the mortality rates are changing as we get a better understanding of what's actually going on with the virus as we work through this pandemic. And so we know that in Italy, the mortality rate is upwards of 10%. But we know that when we average everything out and we look globally, the mortality rate is closer to 1% or somewhere uh, Mm -hmm. even a a little bit lower than that. And so we think that is reassuring. And that's also a glimmer of hope because we know that we're getting to a point where we're seeking to fully understand what the virus is doing. Mm -hmm. And we seem to be getting to a point where we're starting to actively have you know, effective measures taken to stem the spread of the virus. Yeah. And another number I'm going to look at, too, is the difference in the number of new confirmed cases, because as that number gets smaller and smaller and smaller, it shows that the measures that we're doing and the the policy that we're putting in place are taking effect. And LJ, you're going to talk a little bit about that, correct? Correct. So we'll be talking about flattening the curve. It's something that I've been pretty intrigued by just because it talks about kind of the rate of the infections that we're seeing, the rate of the increase of the infections that we're seeing and how that's going to impact society and also how it impacts the hospital system. So flattening the curve is twofold if we boil it down to its most basic components. The first part of it is actively trying to protect the most vulnerable individuals in society. When we look at this pandemic, The demographic that's being affected most when it comes to mortality and deaths from this virus are individuals the age 60 and above. And we know with each increasing decade thereafter, the mortality rate seems to be increasing significantly. In addition to that, we want to protect individuals who are immunocompromised and who don't have immune systems that are as strong as the average individual for whatever reason. And so by practicing social distancing measures, by seeking to engage in good hygiene, and by trying to decrease the amount of personal contact that we have with individuals, that will allow us to ensure that those who are most vulnerable in society are protected. The second aspect of flattening the curve has to do with stemming the rate of the growth of the spread of the virus. And why that's important is because we have a threshold in society where the hospital system is able to manage persons presenting with a severe form of the illness requiring hospitalization. If we have a situation where we're having an influx of individuals that overwhelms the hospital's capacity, then we start to see things happening that are not consistent with what we have come to expect for receiving good quality and efficient health care. And if we look at New York City, for example, we see that we have a rate of growth of persons infected with the virus that is pretty steep. And we also see that persons requiring hospitalizations, that number has increased dramatically. And so the hospital system has become overwhelmed. They have almost run out of ventilators. They're receiving a shipment from China, a thousand ventilators from China to try to keep up with the need, with the demand for ventilators. 
And ventilators are used in medicine to help with someone's breathing if for some reason their respiratory system has become compromised. And so we see that that's happening. We also see situations where they're having to use makeshift morgues because the amount of persons dying are overwhelming. And one country that's a good model for this is South Korea. South Korea got from the time they peaked to the time, well, from the time that they saw their first case to the time they got this under control was within a month's time, which I think is just phenomenal and shows great efficiency and great response. One of the things they say China or I'm sorry, North South Korea had that allowed them to do this was a infrastructure and policies and systems in place that once the pandemic happened, they could easily rev up their production of PPE. There were policies in place. So they really didn't have to do the drastic lockdowns that other countries have had to do in order to control their, their problem. So hopefully countries will take some notes and some tips from South Korea. The WHO will use them as a model as well as other countries when they reevaluate and brief themselves on what was the flaws that caused the poor response to the pandemic uh, this year because, or this season, I should say, because there's going to be another one sometime in the future and we need to be prepared for it to prevent this from happening again. Yeah, hopefully it's not in our lifetime. I think the last yeah. really major pandemic that had devastating global impact was the 1918 flu pandemic. Mm-hmm. And we saw that there was resistance at that time to a lot of the social distancing measures that were requested. When we can point to different cities in the United States and see how actively obeying the social distancing mechanisms caused them to have positive outcomes versus not. I think Philadelphia was one of those cities in 1918 where they had a big parade in the midst of the flu pandemic and thereafter saw a significant spike in the amount of cases and they experienced a significant amount of deaths as a result of that. And I think they're always contrasted to the city of St. Louis because they actively implemented the social distancing recommendations and they saw that their numbers were significantly lower. And so we know that with social distancing, we can actively reduce the amount of cases that are presenting and actively save a significant amount of lives. Yeah, people are saying they think Mardi Gras played a factor in in Louisiana having the spikes that it's having right now in the coronavirus numbers. Interesting. It's because, yeah, I guess it was right before we saw the uptick in the United States. Mm -hmm. And Louisiana has the fastest growth of infections in the Mm -hmm. world. And I think the highest rate of mortality in the world also. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. So unfortunate. We're praying for our brothers and sisters in Louisiana and hope that things ultimately, you know, are brought under control there. So one of the things that has allowed us to help get through this are people helping to donate uh, personal protective equipment. Because we've seen that, as you said before, LG, once the hospital system gets beyond the capacity, they start to have to limit resources. And one of the things that have been extremely limited is personal protective equipment. And for everybody that doesn't know what that is, that's basically the equipment that is used to prevent the transmission of diseases that are spread via contact, droplet, or airborne. So those are your face, your surgical face mask, your gloves, and your N95 mask that everybody has been talking about. By the way, LJ, do you know why they call it an N95 mask? I do not. And I'm assuming based on your tone that you will tell me why. No, I don't know, Ashley. I was wondering if you knew. No, I'm joking. <laughs> because it blocks out 95% of airborne material, apparently, or particles. Ooh, that makes sense. We tend to be very practical in science and medicine. Right? And so I guess I could have, if I thought a little bit harder, figured that out. <laughs> other times not, right? It's like yeah. a total polar opposite sometimes. Like Corona, because it looks like a crown under the microscope, yeah. that's why they're called coronaviruses. There you go. There you but go. I digress, moving right along. No, 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 you're totally fine. But yeah, so those are your N95 masks, your surgical mask, and your, your gloves. It's great that companies are starting to understand that we need 
PPE. And so we're going back to World War II times, which is basically a time where the federal government, I won't say nationalized businesses, but they encouraged businesses to make material that was needed for wartime. So planes, engines, and so forth, anything, guns, and so forth. So now this was happening with companies in America now. So I thought it was very interesting that what companies are making now and how they're switching their gears and their manufacturing processes to other products. So Anheuser-Busch is making hand sanitizer. I thought that was very interesting. Louis Vuitton, Moet, Hennessy, which by the way, it's very interesting how Louis Vuitton, Moet, and Hennessy are all one company. I They're a luxury brand, and so they're, they're diversifying you know, their offerings. I love the Parasum Hennessy with my Louis Vuitton on and then sip some wet later on the afternoon for sure. Maybe. Yeah. Anyway. Some of the other folks that have actually been contributing to the pandemic in quite significant ways are some companies like Crocs who have provided mm-hmm. free Crocs to all healthcare mm-hmm. workers. You have Olay who provided moisturizers for mm-hmm. persons who are healthcare workers. And you have another quite a number of companies who have stepped up to the plate and they've said, in the midst of a pandemic where persons on the front lines are being stretched to their limits, mm-hmm. they're going to seek to you know, make their lives a little bit more comfortable. In addition to everybody else who has been helping out, I think one area that we also need to focus on and pay our homage to are our counterparts who are working in the laboratories seeking to find oh, treatments yeah. and therapies for the coronavirus in the event that we have to deal with this again in the future. And they're also seeking to come up with things right now to try to stem the spread of this virus. Yeah. So to kind of break this up, you can think about treating a virus or treating any type of disease with prevention and then treatment when you actually have it. So let's start with prevention. So there are vaccines that are out there that are being produced. And I want to highlight two vaccines. One is the mRNA vaccine. And just really briefly, guys, mRNA is basically the message your DNA sends to your body to make proteins, basically what that is. So and your DNA, are, that's your building blocks of life, essentially. Yes. Your genetic code. Your genetic code, your building blocks of life, what makes you, you. All right. Uh, so, so mRNA vaccine, basically what that does, it will send a message to the person's body cells to make coronavirus proteins and antibodies that the body will detect and think that the coronavirus has infected the body and then create an immunity toward it. Another one that's coming out that recently came out is from University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. And they contain the key spike proteins on the outside of the coronavirus that are injected into the skin via micro needles, kind of like a patch, like a Band-Aid, which is placed on a person. So I thought those are very, those are two cool vaccines. There are more, obviously, in the pool of ones that are out there for clinical trials and, or I should say, being tested and being investigated, for lack of a better term. Yeah. So I think you have a number of countries across the world are working on potential vaccines just so that we are able to find the best product and the best yes. vaccine that works ultimately. What's great about the one I just mentioned, and I think what they're trying to do is that in the setting of a pandemic, you know, these vaccines take conventional vaccines take a lot of time to to make. And so what they're trying to do is not only make a vaccine that works against the coronavirus, but make a vaccine that can be manufactured on a large scale in this in the setting of, a, of another pandemic. And so the mRNA vaccines are good for that because if that actually shows promise in clinical trials and works, then you can actually attach different RNA strands from different pathogens. And then in the setting of a pandemic of that particular pathogen, you could then manufacture large amounts of that vaccine to then give it to people. 
So again, all this stuff is being investigated. I think it's amazing because it'll push us forward in some area of science that clearly has been lacking. But now, as the saying always goes, and LJ is going to correct me when I say this. Let me just say it. Necessity <laughs> is the mother of invention. Because <laughs> I'm going to murder it. Yes. <laughs> exactly. And so speaking of therapies, we also know that there are a number of medications that are being trialed yes. as we look at coronavirus and to see if we can you know, get ahead of this. And so some of the ones that are most interesting and have the demonstrating significant promise are, the first one is hydroxychloroquine, which is the ger- generic name of the brand name Plaquenil. And it's a medicine that's been used for a number of persons who have autoimmune diseases like lupus, pemphigus vulgaris, arthritis, things of that nature. It's also a drug that's used. Sarcoidosis, correct. It's also been used in the fight against malaria. It's an anti-malarial drug, and that's something that's quite unique. And they're actually seeking to see whether or not it will have an effect against coronavirus. And I think that it's been the medicine that's shown the most promise, Mm -hmm. but there are no definitive studies to actually determine that Plaquenil is an effective drug against corona, the novel coronavirus that we're seeing. Yeah. So China has published a paper saying there was some promise with it. But again, these haven't been confirmed. And there are critiques even on those papers and research. But I think it's a good starting point. Uh, I know Emory just recently started a clinical trial for hydroxychloroquine. So I'm excited to see what the results of that are. Yeah. And so we caution you because even though they're showing promise, we don't want persons to think that this is a wonder drug and start to take it without, you know, appropriate direction from a physician. Because what we know is that no drug essentially is a drug without a side effect. And so you can have toxicities from these medications and you can have pretty bad side effects um, if they're not taken in the correct manner. Another drug that's actually been investigated as it relates to coronavirus is actually a drug called remdesivir. And it was a drug that was developed in the fight against Ebola. They didn't have very much success with um, remdesivir in the fight against Ebola. And so now it's being investigated to see whether or not it would stem the spread of the coronavirus. And so I thought that was also pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then there is the HIV antiretroviral drug, Kaletra, which is a combination drug that they're also using to see if it has any therapeutic advantages and benefits against the coronavirus. And I think that that's pretty, that's a smart place to start because we've had amazing success with the HIV virus mm-hmm. and the interventions there. Even though there hasn't been a cure, then medicines on the market have been mm-hmm. you know, outstanding in terms of pushing the virus back to a point where it doesn't replicate and reproduce to the point where it causes mm-hmm. bad symptoms in the patients and causes the immune system to be mm-hmm. defective. And so I think that they may also show significant promise. But like we said, all of these drugs have to be tested and have to be retested before they can say with any certainty that they've actually been effective against coronavirus. Yeah, so the federal government has reduced restrictions at the policy to get these drugs out for clinical trials. So I think a lot is going to come out of this research, be it information about the coronavirus or just other viruses in general. I think once I think a lot of the information that's going to come out and results that will come out about the coronavirus will be applied to the flu, which is coming up. So hopefully if a lot of this information doesn't work for the coronavirus, hopefully it'll make for better therapies for this next flu season. I think that's hopeful. And I'm hopeful. And I agree. I think that, you know, the research will yield a lot of 
useful research that will allow us to make strides as it relates to flu. What I would do at this point is just plug the need for individuals to recognize the importance of vaccines and the flu vaccine in particular. I saw something posted on social media that I thought was quite noteworthy. They said, you know, you have individuals out there that want a world without any vaccines, and we see what's happening without one single vaccine for coronavirus. And so I always tell folks when they speak poorly of vaccines, I said, while vaccines may not be completely benign, they may not be without their drawbacks or side effects for certain individuals, and that's a small subset of the population, we must recognize that they have done wonders in terms of ensuring that we have extended life expectancy and persons are living into adulthood. Many persons have never this scene what happens with bad measles, a severe case of chickenpox. We are beyond the times of smallpox and polio. And when persons actually see what these disease processes actually look like, and they understand what it is to watch an individual die from these things, I think then the attitudes will change towards, you know, being accepting of vaccines that are made available. As much as I agree with what you just said, I believe that we are still going to have people that are still going to be resistant to getting this vaccine for the same reasons they're resistant of getting other vaccines. People will say, well, I didn't get the coronavirus last year, so, you know, whatever, I'll just, I'll, I'll be fine. But they're not realizing the importance of vaccine as it applies not only to themselves, but to other people who can't get the vaccine. But we'll see how it all plays out. I'm from the Bahamas, and we are a country that has liberty to the extent that the United States has. And they are currently under a 24-hour lockdown in the Bahamas. And you are only allowed out if you're someone who's providing an essential service. So healthcare providers, persons involved in law enforcement, Mm -hmm. so on and so forth. And then you are allowed to go to the grocery store on certain days at certain times based on the part of the alphabet of your last name. So that was that's interesting because me and a friend of mine had to talk about this and draconian measures. Exactly. We, the United States hasn't taken draconian measures yet. So my friend was saying that, you know, the, one of the reasons it hasn't, even though that would ideally prevent and uh, work against the spread of the virus, they haven't done that because everything that the United States would establish upon is the antithesis of that in itself, draconian measures, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, all which would be taken away from people by the federal government if those measures were to be put into place. So let me ask you this question, because we're talking about vaccinations, we're talking about getting vaccinations. So let me ask you two questions. My first question, in the Bahamas, is there any penalty for being out if you are not one of the essential workers So the police have the right to stop you and question you, and you have to provide proof to explain where you're going and why you're on the streets during the the lockdown. And you get fined, and you can also, depending on the infraction, you can even be imprisoned. Well, let me ask this question. So if we're talking about vaccinations for coronavirus and we're talking about stopping the spread, both vaccines and both vaccines and social distancing stop the spread of a virus, stop the impact the virus can have on a population, correct? So the question that we were having, my friend the other day was that, okay, if we're going to put in draconian measures to penalize people, find them, potentially jail them for not obeying by the policy, can we then impose that on people who don't get vaccinations? No, I think that that's different because that's something that's being done to someone's body, right? We but can't the purpose of to- it is to prevent the spread and the presentation of a pandemic, correct? It is. But if those things are in place and you choose not to avail yourself of them, you're the one who's at risk because if everybody else does what they're supposed to do, they will be able to overcome another presentation of 
the virus well, in society. Well, no. If you choose to be the person who goes without the vaccine or you choose not to take the medication and you have a bad outcome, then that's a choice that you've made and you're allowed to make that choice. But what about herd immunity, which, by the way, guys, is the theory that a more of a certain population or percentage of a population are a vaccine to something than people who are unable to get the vaccination for whatever reasons are protected just because that percentage of the population is immune to, to the disease. So if I don't get the vaccination, then I'm putting somebody else at harm who can't get the vaccination. So I think if you can get the vast majority of individuals in the population to buy into what we're saying, and they can understand what's happening because they're living it and they're seeing it, then I don't think that making that case will be difficult in the future. Thanks for joining us for another exciting episode of Pop Culture and Penicillin. We would love to hear your comments and contributions about the topics discussed on the episode and invite you to continue the conversation on social media. Yes, you can find us at PC and Pen, that's P-C-A-N-D-P-E-N, on all social media platforms and via email at PCNPen at gmail.com. You can contact Dr. Warren, that's me, at the Dr. Warren. That's T-H-E-D-R-W-A-R-R-E-N on Instagram and Twitter and Dr. LJ at Dr. McLJ on Instagram. 